Hello. Can I get an amen for the summer to slow down? Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe we're already a week through July. And once again, uh, Sammy Sammy and I were both able to be here for the 4th. And I just feel like in Whiting, we need to have the 4th like every week because I'm blown away by the amount of people that show up in our small town and actually fit in our town. Um, But... um, So I'm looking forward, today we get to continue in our study through the life of David. Uh, Now a while back, Mike asked me to preach today, and without thinking I said yes, and then I I learned of the passage of David's life that I was getting to preach. So I gave it a quick read, and here's part of it. Now David and his men went up and raided the Gershites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From the ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt, And whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep, cattle, and donkeys, and camels, and clothes, and then he returned to Achish. So what I thought after my initial reading was that David had fled to live among the Philistines, and then to fit in, went on these killing sprees, leaving no one alive. I went back to Mike, and I was like, what in the world did I do to you that I get to preach this passage? Nevertheless, I dove into it, and there's so much more going on than I had originally thought on first read. And it also helped that I kind of made Mike feel bad. Uh, So he said he'd send me some commentary notes, and by some, I mean he sent me over 70 pages of commentary notes. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. So as a little kind of side message this morning, you know, how often does this happen when we read our Bible? We give a passage a once-over, and we either brush it off as another story in the Bible, or it's just too theologically deep for us, so we move on. But what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16, is that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, especially in the Old Testament, there are some strange stories in the Bible, One we might get to later in the life of David is when a man is is fleeing from some people and he's riding on his mule and he gets his head stuck in a tree and then his mule walks off, leaving him hanging there by his head stuck in this tree. (laughs) Once he is found, they, they kind of essentially use him as target practice. It's a strange story. Another strange story that happens to be one of my favorites Uh, my students have heard me talk about this story a lot, is when the prophet Elisha is traveling on this road, when some youths come out taunting him, calling him bald. Now, as a youth pastor, I imagine that they are about the junior high age. (laughs) It fits. It it does. Now, Elisha, not going to take this, calls down a curse of God, and all of a sudden, two she-bears come out. I have no idea why it mentions that they're female, but... It says that there are she-bears. Come out and maul 42 of the junior hires. It's a great story. Yes, yeah, that's great. One last example. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was the dean at the first junior high camp at Camp Naboa, and one of our family group leaders comes up to me at late night snack, and he points to a group of junior high boys who were all sitting down at, their ta- at this table, and they all had their Bibles open, they were reading. 
And at first, I was super excited. I was like, man, we've got these students who want to study even when it's not time to study. And then the family group leader told me that they discovered the book of Song of Solomon, (laughs) which is all about marriage. That's all I'm going to say. So I looked closer, and they were just sitting there giggling. Now, luckily, their group leader was able to handle it well, and instead of squashing their excitement, took the time to explain to them the use of Song of Solomon in the Bible. But this is why it's so important that we don't just give a quick read-through of our Bible, but instead we take the time to open ourselves up to the wisdom and insight that God gives us from the text. The Bible is not just the terms of agreement to our salvation, where, we, where we, what we all do is we just scroll to the bottom and hit accept. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaves do not wither. Whatever they do prospers. If we're going to study our Bible, we need to make sure that we're being intentional about that and understanding that um, whatever is written in there, it's there for a purpose and it's something that there's something in there that we can learn from it. And so with that being said, let's get to um, our story of David today. And so this morning we'll be looking at around three to four chapters of 1 Samuel. Um, So if you want, you can open up to 1 Samuel. We'll be starting in chapter 27. Now, you can follow along if you want, but I'm not going to be reading everything word for word um, unless you want to be here till 2 o'clock. So at this point, Saul is still in pursuit of David trying to kill him. Now, David fearing that if something doesn't change soon, Saul might actually succeed. And so a bizarre twist of events, David does. He flees to the land of the Philistines to seek shelter and one of the five city-states that the Philistines have. Ironically, it's the city of Gath that David goes to, which is the hometown of Goliath. Now, this worked out because once Saul realizes what David has done, uh, he stops pursuing him. But this is where the story gets interesting. Because David is essentially, in asking refuge, placed himself among the service of the king of this city-state. Now, this king, whose name sounds like a sneeze, Akish, knows that there's a lot of tension between Saul and David, and he believes that David, in seeking refuge, has become an enemy of Israel. He thinks that David has come over to the dark side with the Philistines. Now, because we know David better than that, we know that's not the case. So David, he needs to be able to operate where Akish can't see everything he is doing because if Akish finds out that he's not truly an enemy of Israel, then things are going to go south pretty quickly. And so being sly, David acts like he's not good enough to live in the royal city. And so he asks for some land outside of it to live in. And for what won't be the last time, Akish is tricked by David and gives him the land Ziklag to live in. And for over a year, David and 600 of his men and all their families lived in Ziklag. While they were there, they raided nearby enemies. Now, this is where 
a deeper reading is what helped me understand what was actually going on. David made it seem to Achish that they were raiding places in the south side of Judah, which would mean that David was attacking his own people. But instead, what he was actually doing was raiding common enemies that Israel and the Philistines had. So instead of being the ruthless mercenary, destroying his reputation in Israel that Achish thought he was doing, he was actually wiping out ancient enemies of Israel, playing guardian to their southern border and gaining favor in them. So I want to point out something very interesting here, and I think it plays a big role in why we see David end up being the favored one over Saul. David in this situation is in a really hard place. He was forced to flee and seek shelter among his enemies. And while here, he has a choice. He could have gone down a bad path and actually become a mercenary for Achish, raiding the southern border of Judah and Israel. He could have actually done what he was telling Achish that he was doing. But instead, because we know that David is a man after God's own heart, and that's not what he does. He risks being exposed as a liar by raiding these ancient enemies of Israel who God commanded be destroyed, um, which is, goes back all the way to the book of Joshua. And amid incredible pressure, David decides to make the decision that honors God. And what this book, in first, this book of 1 Samuel continues to do is it shows us the difference between Saul and David. Because you see, Saul never would have made that decision. And that's why God will eventually remove him from his position and give it to David. And because David is a man after God's heart, he accomplishes this by being obedient to what he knows of God's desire of him. Because notice something interesting. David never received any direction from God in this situation. In fact, God isn't even mentioned in this chapter. The name of God is not mentioned once in the entire chapter 27. And that's the thing. David didn't need a verbal direction from God because he knew what decision God would want him to make. He knew that God would not approve killing his own chosen people, but, God, but David didn't know what would bring honor to God and destroying the groups they had already commanded be destroyed. David, in this awful situation was able to follow what he knew was right and use that to his advantage. When you find yourself in a difficult situation in life, one of the most common things to come with that is the temptation to make a decision that doesn't honor God. That's something the enemy loves is when we have to make a decision, right, there's always going to be that, the, the angel and the, and the demon or whatever on the shoulders telling us which way to go. And I love this story because God didn't have to tell David what the right decision was. How many times in life are we in a situation where we know exactly what we need to do, but we hesitate because we know that's not the easy thing to do? That we're scared that if we have to go down that route where we honor God, that it's going to be so much harder. And maybe it will be. And it always seems easier to go with the way that doesn't honor God. But ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, that is an illusion. And if you want proof, take a look at what's going on with Saul. I know I've found myself in situations like these before. 
Um, something that was extremely stressful for Sammy and I was doing taxes for the first time while we were married. For whatever reason, I thought it'd be the easiest to do it ourselves. I, it was not. <laughs> I was wrong. It was super complicated. To make matters worse, uh, as a pastor, we're considered contracted labor, which means we file as self-employed. And so Sammy knew that we would have to pay in at the end of the year. Now, in the middle of doing things, I realized there's this great section called deductions. And, you know, on TurboTax, where we're doing it, you can enter whatever number you want, which is is super tempting. Like, oh, I drove two million miles this year. You didn't see that? My car didn't either. Now, naturally, God didn't need to tell us what to do in that situation. We could have easily, easily have eased the burden of paying in by just fudging some of those deductions a little bit. But we knew that wasn't the decision that honored God. Now, we didn't end up lying or anything, and I since have learned to go somewhere else to get my taxes done, which is 5,000 times easier and less stressful. But situations like these are not uncommon. And again, Ultimately, it's only an illusion that the way that doesn't honor God is easier. And so we look back at David. He's got tons more stuff going on. And so in in chapter 29, we'll skip over 29. Um, After endearing himself to Achish, um, he did this so well that Achish appointed him, uh, David and his men, his personal bodyguard. So David was now the personal bodyguard of Achish, but this turns out to be only kind of trouble for David, because the Philistines have decided that they're going to march against the Israelites again. So now David is put between this rock and a hard place, because he knows that he can't fight Israel. These are his people, and more importantly, these are God's people. But he also knows that if he turns on the Philistines then that nice setup in Ziklag that he has is over. And him and his people are going to have to go uh, run away again and flee somewhere else to find refuge. And lastly, even if he does defeat the Philistines, who's to say that Saul won't turn around and attack him when he's in a vulnerable position? And this is one of the the craziest things happens. And so I want to read this part. It's in 1 Samuel 29, verses 3 through 7. It says, the commanders of the Philistines asked, what about these Hebrews? And Achish replied, is this not David, who is an officer of Saul, king of Israel, who has already been with me for over a year, and from the day he left Saul until now, I have found no fault in him. But the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, send the man back that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favor than by taking the heads of our own men? Isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So Kish called David and said, As surely as the Lord lives, you have been reliable, and I would be pleased to have you serve with me in the army. From the day you came to me until today, I have found no fault in you, but the rulers don't approve of you. Now 
turn back and go in peace and do nothing to displease the Philistine rulers. So David is about to have to go into this impossible decision when the situation completely works itself out for him. Naturally, the Philistine commanders don't trust him. So they don't want him in the battle with them. So they tell Akish, no, he needs to go back. He's not fighting with us. He's going to turn on us, which they were right. And what's funny about this is for Akish to do this is actually insulting to David. So he comes back to David and is very apologetic, like, hey, I'm sorry I have to do this. They're not going to allow me to have you in battle with us. And, you know, and David's sitting here trying to act upset, like, uh, oh, man, shoot, like, really? I really wanted to fight? Yeah, I'm just going to go. Like, <laughs> you know, like, he's just walking back out of the situation, you know, wiping the sweat off his brow. And once again, we see the situation work out seemingly perfect for David. So him and his men, they turn around and they go back to the safety of Ziklag while the Philistines and the Israelites prepare to duke it out. I'm sure they're celebrating all the way back until they get to Ziklag and they see that while they're away, the Amalekites had come and they raided Ziklag and kidnapped all the women and children. You know, this kind of sounds like a plot to a movie where the hero has, you know, he thinks he's won and only for an old enemy to resurface and kidnap the people the hero loves. But David, once again, has a hard choice to make because his men are beginning to turn on him. They're blaming him for this happening, which, I mean, they are the, I mean, he is the reason that they are where they are. And again, we see this difference between Saul and David because we see that David finds his strength in God. And he asks God, if I pursue the raiders, will I overtake them? And God responds to David that he would not only overtake them, but he would also rescue their people as well. And so David takes his men and he heads off to hunt down these raiders. And along the way, some of his men, still exhausted from the trip to the Philistine battle lines and back, are too tired to continue. So 200 of them stay behind as David, and now only 400 of his men continue in pursuit of these raiders. And as they do, they come across an Egyptian slave, this man who's been wandering and is clearly sick and near death. So they take him in, and they, they treat him, and they, and they nurse him back to health. And what it turns out is this man was a slave to one of the Amalekites who had abandoned him when he got sick. And so once he was up to it, uh, he agreed to show David where the Amalekites were. And so for over a day, David and his men fought the Amalekites until they had achieved victory. They took what they could and headed back to Ziklag with their families all safe. And once again, David, a man of character, when they got back to the men who had stayed behind, some of his men were angry and refused to share in the plunder with those who didn't go. David, knowing that it was not because of them that they achieved this victory, but because of God, made the decree that it would be shared. And so he even sent a portion of it up to Judah, to the Israelites. Now that's a lot of story. And there's so much to unpack with what's going on in all these different situations in, in David. Now, although we'll never find ourselves in situations like these in our lives, unless you somehow find yourself fighting ancient enemies of Israel, um, good luck. 
we still come across so many of the situations where we have to make a decision. And it starts at an early age. Who will I be friends with? What activities should I participate in in school? Should I date this person? Where should I go to college? What do I want to pursue as a career? Where should I move to? Should I marry this person? Should I have kids? How do you raise kids well? Currently asking myself that one. Do I stay in the career that I'm in now? How do I maintain my marriage? These can all be terrifying questions that keep us up at night. Because we have no idea what to do at times. And hopefully, while you're in the middle of this, you're asking the question, God, what do you want me to do in these situations? Right? I don't know about you, but I've never had God verbally tell me what to do in my life. I've never you know, had the big booming, do this. Yes, the Bible has some great insights into some of these questions, but it's not like in the Bible in like 3 Leviticus 15, it says, Jed, you should go to this specific college and major in this. And I think these stories of David show us what it's like to live a life of faith. And here's how I see this working out with David here. He knows where he's at, and he knows where God has promised him to end up. The rest is just trusting in God to get him from point A to point B. David knew he was free to make decisions on his own and knew how to make decisions that honored God. And through this, he was able to work in the different situations to help David. Whether it was getting the land of Ziklag, being able to be the guardian to Judah without Achish finding out, getting out of the battle between the Israelites and Philistines, tracking down the Amalekites, or even then defeating them. I mean, look at that last one in particular. David, at the present moment, when he found out that the women and children were kidnapped, right, that's his present. He had to decide where to go from there. And the only information that he was given was the end game, that God knew that he would defeat the Amalekites and retrieve his people. So David relied the rest on faith for God to get him from A to B. What we know is that the Amalekites had a three-day head start on David and his men. There should have been no way that David was able to track them down through the wilderness. But we see that opportunity comes along with the Egyptian slave. David made the God-honoring choice to take care of this man, and because of it, he was able to lead them to the Amalekites. God provided for David along the way and helped him reach where God said he would reach. We see this in the overall story of David as well. David is said to be the future king of Israel, and the Bible shows us the path that God carved for that to be possible. Now, is the path that God carves for us always going to be straight? Probably almost never. (laughs) But it's about trusting God to get us from A to B. When I was in junior high, high school, I felt God wanting me to go into ministry. So I had my point A, I knew where I was, and I knew that God wanted me into ministry, so I knew my point B. But then I felt like I had to choose the specific path to go on. Right? I, I felt like, you know, I had to choose the perfect college because if I chose the wrong college, then I'm messing up God's will for my life, and everything else is just going to go wrong from there. 
And I realized that that's not how God works. That he gives us the freedom to make choices in our life. I could have chosen any college and God could work through it to get me to where I am today. Because that's how amazing our God is. Let's look at the grander scale of things. Because sometimes it's hard to know what B is. Where does God want us to end up? You know, in some of those uh, questions in life that we have to answer, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's easy. Well, you know, when raising a child, I want them to end up loving God. Um, or, uh, you know, if you're going to pick a college, well, it's going to be some college. You know, that's the end point. But sometimes in life, that, that end goal just seems foggy. And I can't, always an- I can't answer that for you of what the question you're struggling with, what that end game is. But I do know one thing. Our ultimate end point is to be with God for all eternity. This is something that God has been working on from the very beginning. And we see this, that in the Bible we get this beautiful picture of God working from point A to B, showing us uh, that he is constantly working in our lives to get us to that point. And that once we accept the gift of grace, our point B is locked in place and there is nothing in this universe strong enough to keep us from getting through this journey known as our Christian life. I don't want you to feel paralyzed and thinking you have to follow some specific outline for your life and that if you make one wrong decision, it throws everything off because that is a sad look at our God if he can't work through some of those things. you're going to face some hard decisions in life. At times, it might seem like God is not giving you an answer. But God has given you everything that you need to make the choice that honors him. He's given us his word, which we find our delight in. Like I read in Psalm, there will be like a tree planted beside a stream where everything we do prospers. If we have the, we have the Holy Spirit... And we have God literally dwelling inside of us. We have people in our lives who have more wisdom than ourselves that we can consult. And he's given us the knowledge that there's nothing, there's more than one option to things that honor him. And he is powerful enough to work through each one of those options, whichever one you choose. Trust in our God that he is going to get you from A to B. And know that your ultimate end point is to be with him. And if you have accepted that gift of grace, then there's nothing that's going to stop God from making that happen. Will you pray with me? Dear God, I thank you so much for this morning and I thank you for who you are. That your wisdom, your strength, goes far beyond our own. I'm not saying this morning that we should rely on our own wisdom, not at all. I'm saying that you have given us uh, wisdom that we can use your wisdom to make decisions in our life that you can work through. God, help us have faith in you. 
There's going to be times in our life where things get difficult, where we have to make decisions. Help us through that. Walk with us through that. We thank you so much for the example of David. Now we get to see how he was a man of integrity in these passages, that he made the decisions that honored you and help us do that in our own life. Whenever we come against one of those decisions where it might seem easier to do something that you would disagree with, that we would turn away from that and we would walk towards a decision that honors you. There's nothing more important in our life than our relationship with you and anything that brings us closer to you. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.